Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode 63, recorded Friday the 16th of December 2022. And today I have another preview for you of Rebel of Riddle and Woe, the forthcoming third book in the Tidecaller Chronicles, plus a little talk afterwards about the magic that can happen when a careful planner like me realizes the things I didn't plan might end up being the best parts of the story. So as always, this comes with a spoiler warning. If you've listened to the first two chapters, it's probably null and void, whether you've read books one and two or not. But this chapter as well uh, definitely spoils books one and two, especially book two if you haven't read it. So uh, if you care about that, you might want to pause and go grab books one and two or finish them up and then listen to this. If you don't, read on. This is uh, chapter number three of Rebel of Riddle and Woe. Anon lets out a whoop when I tell him the next morning. Some jewel that can save the world? Slops, yes. Just tell me where to break in. Trust him to assume it's a jewel and he can steal it. Still, we might need him to do just that. It will be a grand adventure, Kifte says, striking a fist to his chest. A legend. The bards will sing of it for centuries to come. The mother smiles on us, Tewo says simply, though his eyes gleam. So where do we go? Anon asks. I explain about Yemla and the river post, and our sleepy morning camp is suddenly a bustle of activity, hitching oxen and cooking breakfast and oiling the wagon hubs, everyone talking excitedly about the flood monocle. I feel a wave of gratitude that they care about this as much as I do. Then impatience rolls over it like a tidal wave, huge and implacable and ready to bury anything in its path. It was bad before, but now that we have a goal, I give up completely on trying to control it. Everything in my life points me towards this river post. Hujay, help me if it's a dead end. We stop to wait out the day's heat at a trading post, sharing dried fish and bitter millet porridge. I would be back on the rails in a minute if the oxen could handle it. Anon and I share a smoke, and I try to relax into the small talk. Then I start up at a whistle from Akifte, who's taken watch while the rest of us relax in the shade of the exchange's threadbare awning. Thought you might want to see this, he says when I reach him. Looks like one of yours. I squint against the sun, heat sending ripples off the iron rails, distorting a solitary figure walking there. They do wear the flowing open-bottom blouse of women in my home city, out of place here in the Darnese hinterlands. I squint harder. There's something familiar about that gait, too, that self-confident swagger. Everything okay? He asks, but I barely hear him, mouth dropping open in shock. Gaxna? I run, pelting down the iron track, my mind a tempest of questions, my heart the sea churning beneath. It can't be her. It's impossible. But there she is, stopping to grin that insolent old grin, a patch over her eye and a wig on her head. I crush her in the hardest hug I've ever given, tears flooding out of my eyes. She tries to say something and I just jam my mouth on hers, not ready for words yet, not having any myself, just a storm wall of love and relief, washing away all the fear and uncertainty and guilt I've been waiting in these last two months. Well, maybe not all the guilt. I'm sorry, I gasp when we come up for air, for leaving you. I... 
Don't be stupid, she says, and pulls me back in, her body like a sun-warmed pool after a day in the freezing wind, her hands sparking on my skin like tiny lightning bolts. The connection is still blank, her seeds still silent inside, and the reminder of all my questions, all my fears, pulls me out of our embrace. How did you get here? I breathe. Are they after you? What did they do to you? Floods, Gaxna. First rule of thievery, she smirks. Use every tool you've got. Remember that monk trick you taught me? The blind or whatever? It worked on the witches a little, so I kept working and, she shrugs, I figured it out. It all comes back to me. That last fight in Narimes' bedchamber. You blocked the blood push for a second, she snorts. Long enough to get stabbed, yeah? And then you disappeared, I say, unable to keep all the grief from my voice, even here, with her whole and alive and smirking in my arms. She was ready to die for me, and I abandoned her. Your seed inside, I got some of your blood when the blade went through you and into me. It was how I knew you weren't dead. Well, that and the immersions, even though I was avoiding them, but... But then the seed went cold. It's still cold, I want to say, but she's so real in my arms that it doesn't matter. She's alive. Must be the blood block, she shrugs. I don't know. I never made it that far in the training, and the witches don't know how to block it anyway. But I keep it up all the time now, even when I sleep. The second I let it down, a shadow passes across her eyes, and my heart swells with compassion. I remember that life. Have only recently gotten used to not keeping my blind up day and night, though I probably should. Too many people have my blood. And then you just escaped? Not that easy, she says, expression going grim. They kept me in the pits, took me out for parades, that kind of thing. So even after I figured it out, I had to keep it a secret. If they knew I could block their push, they would have just chained me up, maybe never let me out. I think they were trying to use me to get to you, though Miara would come sometimes and spout some slop about how I could be their figurehead too, how they're going to take me back to the guild, then train me in the temple. She shakes her head. She was the one who had control of me mostly, her and a couple of her other witches. A part of me notes that Gaxna knows things we could use, might have information that could help in the search for the monocle, but I don't care right now. So you waited until one of those parades and... Snuck right out of the cage, she grins. Narimais was looking one way, Yale at the other, so I picked the lock and blocked her push and leapt onto a rooftop. I never had a chance from there. I know it wasn't that easy. I remember being chased by a bloodborne overseer across the roofs of Saray. It ended in me almost dying. Still, I don't call out her modesty, already feeling guilty enough. The important thing is that she got out and she's here, with me. I shake my head. How did you find me? Remember that sword that stuck my blood into you? It brought yours back to me on the way out. And I don't know what in slops you've been doing the last couple of months, but you were stressing me out. She shakes her head, looking at me. I was the one locked in the pits, right? I smile. I missed you. And I kind of got locked into a thing too, but I got out. Which makes me remember where we are and who I'm with. A sudden dread fills my stomach. Isong. Some friends help me, I say, my tongue feeling numb. You want to meet them? Her arms don't loosen where they're looped around the small of my back. How about we ditch them instead, she says in a lower voice. We're out of Saray now, Thea, like we always dreamed about. We can go anywhere. This time, I can't share her smile. There are floods coming, Gaxna, like real floods. 
She pulls back a touch. And you're going to stop them. It's not a question, but I hear the question in it. Someone has to. Again? First you needed to prove your dad was murdered, and now you got to stop the bleeding floods? Don't you ever take time for yourself? There's no time to take, I almost say. But I don't want to have this conversation right now. Already I feel my joy slipping, and I don't want to lose it. I want to savor it. And floods, yes, I want to take the time for us. I just... Tonight, I whisper, catching sight of Anon and the others coming up the rails. I have a tent. We'll talk it all through, okay? I squeeze her hands and pull her body close. However confused my heart is, my body knows exactly what it wants. I press my lips to her ear. Or we don't have to talk. Anon whistles behind us, and a blush rises in my cheeks. The last flooding thing I want right now is to lose what little privacy we have, but I need my friends. And I've spent so much time thinking about what they would think of Gaxna, I'm excited for them to meet. Or I used to be, before Isong. So this is the lady love, huh? Anon calls, looking Gaxna up and down. I'm still searching for words when Isong steps in front of him. Anon, show some manners. He turns to Gaxna, and my heart pounds, and he drops into a perfectly formal Sarayan bow. Isong Ajuja, of Duran, at your service. Gaxna is giving all of them a less than enthusiastic look. Gaxna, she says briefly, from Saray. You are fortunate, he says neutrally, to find us so far from your city. The Gaxna, Ikifte calls, never one for reading moods. The famous thief, and wrongfully imprisoned by the Usapa and his evil witches. And now you have escaped, he slaps a fist to his chest. I look forward to hearing your tales, great Gaxna, and welcome you into our growing band. May the bard sing your name a hundred years. Gaxna seems even less equipped to deal with this, but I'm only half watching, my eyes jumping between her and Isong, my heart twisting into knots. Does she know? What does Isong think? He has on his professional phase, the one he used for negotiating with guards or dealing with his contacts outside the arena, and he's too flooding good at it for me to have any idea what he's actually thinking. My hands itch to grab him, to get some read through his skin of what he's thinking, but I can't exactly do that in front of Gaxna. Or at all now. Floods. I can't just ignore what I have with Isong. I realize they're all staring at me, like somebody just asked me a question. Right. Well, can't stand here all day, I say. Catastrophic floods and, I glance at Gaxna, um, overseers to escape, right? For a second, all five of them give me the same flat stare. Then Anon slaps Gaxna on the shoulder. Welcome to the slop show. Smoke? We've got the best clove in the world. I don't really know how we get back to the wagon and underway again. My heart is still swimming with the fact that Gaxna's alive and here, and my head drowning in trying to figure out what this means for me and Isong. Not to mention how I'm going to figure out my old fight with Gaxna about being together versus saving the world, especially since I already chose the world once, and it nearly got her killed. I keep glancing at her as we roll down the rails, Anon at the reins with Gaxna and me on the buckboard, Isong and Tewo in the back and Akifte scouting looking for some sign that she's mad at me, or is just happy to have found me, or is fine with my friends if it means she can have me, if she resents the hell out of me for not just ditching all of them and running away with her on sight. I sigh, axles creaking beneath us as we cross another fork in the rails, one spur leading toward the ocean and a port, on those according to our map. If only I could read her through our hands, clasped together between us, clammy from the heat. 
if only i could feel her through the bond of our blood but she keeps both blocked if i had the strange power Narimes does maybe i could read her through her blind and if i had tasted isong's blood on that day in the arena when he was bleeding out in my arms maybe i would know what he's feeling too it's nothing i want to talk to either of them about when everyone else can hear so gaxna anon says giving a tiny flick of the reins Halithea tells me you're a thief sometimes gaxna says she's basically been staring straight ahead since we got on the buckboard answering in single syllables i don't need magic to know she doesn't want to be here ever hit any of the guilds i always wanted to get to your city and try one out gaxna snorts i hit all of them i hear just a little bit of the gaxna i know in her tone that easy huh she shifts Oh, you gotta know what you're doing. Not like these idiots in Durana hear about, so uppity with their money they don't even think anyone's gonna take it. Anon's turn to snort. Regular people, maybe, but when you start working on amaranths... On impulse, I slip off the board. If anything's gonna keep Gaxna occupied, it's talking about stealing. And if anything's gonna keep Anon going, it's trying to outboast someone. Plus, I've always thought if those two just started talking clove quality, they could probably go on for hours. I hope they do. I sincerely want Gaxna and my other friends to get along. But right now, I just need to make sure I haven't hurt more people I love. Scratch that. I don't think it's an if with Isong, just a how much. The cart rumbles past me, new spokes standing out against the older ones in our repaired wheel, the hooped canvas top bright in the afternoon sun. I take a deep breath, catch the back rail, and jump in. Only to find Tewo alone, eyes closed, likely in whatever form of meditation his people do. Isong's not there, though he spends most of his days back here, reading the chronicles or writing letters. My heart squeezes. Did he leave? Without even saying goodbye? That doesn't feel like Isong. Gaxna, maybe, but Isong's too considerate for that. Tewo opens his eyes. You are looking for your lover, or your other lover. Floods. What do these people think of me now? I know multiple partner relationships are more common in some parts of the world. Yemla would be ashamed at me for not remembering which. But it's certainly not that way in Saray, and I'm too much in Ujayan to be able to ignore that. Just the thought of somehow convincing Isong and Kaxna of that. He is back there, Tewo says, nodding his head at the rails behind us. Been walking all afternoon. Slops. But I don't know why I expected any different. Of course he wanted to get away from me and Gaxna. And I should probably respect that. Sometimes people need space. I certainly have my moments. Should, but I can't. I thank him and hop out, then start walking the opposite direction, the cart's rumble fading as it heads west, and I, briefly, walk back toward Duran. I see Isong eventually, just a tall thread wavering in the heat as he tops the last hill we climbed. I take a deep breath, then another, willing my heart to settle for the stewing mass of worry and guilt in my chest to sort itself out. The air is thick with heat and moisture, and I force my focus outward like I was taught. Tall grasses line the shoulders of the ironway, and green-winged insects cling to them, filling the air with a whirring song. I welcome the breeze that sways through them, brushing cool against my skin and carrying the tang of salt water, the same here as everywhere, the scent of my home. The meditation does its work, and if I'm not fully settled by the time Isong gets close, I'm not a total wreck either. I want to smile at him, but my chest is too tight, 
so I hold out a hand instead. He hesitates for a moment, then takes it. Hey, I say, falling in beside him. Hey. You doing okay? Floods, I hate how bad I am at words. With your old lover suddenly showing up, you mean? Isong suffers no such problems, even if his words come out stiff. Isong, I didn't know she was coming. I... I search for the right words. I did, he says quietly. I didn't expect her here, but you've never been shy about wanting to rescue her, about wanting her back, about her coming first. His last words are hard, like a dagger pushing against the armor around my heart. The irony's not lost on me that Gaxna's hurt too, because I chose fighting Nerimes over being with her. I can't win. Deep breath. I don't know who comes first. I don't want to have to choose. I thought we would have more time together, but... But you always knew you would pick her if you did get her back. It sounds so cold that way, like a merchant transaction. You're not a pastime for me, Isong. The words come out angry. I don't know what we are, but I care about you. I'm not just going to forget about you, even with Gaxna here. He chews on his lip a moment, face calm, but the bond of our touch betrays a storm of thoughts inside. Have you considered, he says after a moment, how strange it is for her to show up here now? I haven't had time to consider anything since Gaxna came. Yes, I mean, it's a miracle that she escaped Saray at all, but after that? She has my blood, and she had some training with the Therakins, so she just followed it here. He nods, still staring forward. A week earlier, and she would have found you still trapped in the arena. A week later, and following us on foot from the west would have meant she likely never caught up. My brows draw in. What are you saying? I am saying, he says, still watching the horizon, that we have no idea what she actually went through in Saray, what kind of bargain she might have struck to get out. The words are like a slap to the face. She would never do that, never sell out. His smile is sad. My trainer used to tell me the easiest mistake is assuming your opponent fights like you do. You would never sell out, Alethea. But Gaxna? How long did you actually know her before she got captured? A week? Two? Can you be sure? I set my jaw. I don't think we should be having this conversation. You think I'm saying this because I'm jealous, that I want to drive a wedge between you two. And I am jealous, Alethea. Of course I am. His grip tightens in mine. But I would never do that. You know me, saw me in every kind of situation in Duran. I'm being honest when I say I just want what's best for you, even if that means stepping aside. His voice gets thick. I'll probably never stop wanting to be with you, but I'm not going to get in the way of your happiness, no matter how much it hurts. That's not what love is, not to me anyway. He might as well rip my heart out and mash it under his boot heel, but some of my anger at his words about Gaxna still burns. I grab at it like lumber in a shipwreck, desperate to stay on the surface of my deeper feelings. If I fall down there, I'm never coming out. But you will try to make me suspicious of Gaxna, is that it? He flinches, and I know I've only heard him more. The sea of despair swells, and I cling to my anger for dear life. What I'll do is still try to protect you, he says. Think about it. Gaxna found you because she had your blood, and Miara controlled Gaxna because she had Gaxna's blood. I don't know how Therakin powers work, but what if Miara can use that connection to find you? What if she sent Gaxna, or she's still controlling her somehow? 
Bloodborne can't talk, I snap, then feel bad about it. I think he really is just trying to protect me, even if maybe jealousy is driving him somewhere deeper down. I take a breath, not naturally anyway, and they move awkwardly when they walk. There's no way you could mistake them for a regular person. And Gaxna escaped by blocking that push, by concentrating to keep Miara out of her body, the same way that I can concentrate to keep other seers out of my mind. I know she did because I felt her connection go blank weeks ago. He nods, and for a moment there's just insect song and the steady crunch of our feet on the gravel between the rails. Just be careful, okay? He truly means well, this man that I have hurt. Floods. I'm sorry, Yisong. I don't know what I'm doing. He squeezes my hand. No one does. We'll figure it out. I think it's that we, after I've done so much to hurt him, that pulls the last bit of footing out from under me. I slip into a sea of self-loathing. I don't know what I did to deserve you, but... But what? I'm going to pick him over Gaxna now? No, but still... I find myself holding on to him, crying in the broad daylight of the ironway. His lean body is solid as a rock, his voice soft and reassuring. We stay like that a long time. I hate that what shakes me out of it is a sudden jolt of fear, imagining Gaxna seeing us. I pull back and see the hurt in his eyes before the mask comes up. My heart squeezes. I guess we better go back. He nods, but doesn't start walking. You go ahead. I'll keep watch from back here for now. It hurts to leave him there, but everything hurts today. I go. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, this is when we come back into the timeline where Witch of Wealth and Ruin ended. Um, I needed to backtrack a little bit in chapters one and two to give us some background for what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And hopefully, so if you aren't letting these uh, previews spoil you. You knew that Gaxna was coming back. Here she is. And that uh, is one of the things that I really didn't plan for. Obviously, she's gone all of book two. And Alethea is pining for her, trying to get out, worried that she's in trouble, can't read her through the bond anymore. All of these things happen. And it sort of seems like I'm setting you up for the mission that she's going to go save her, right? And then it just came to me as I was writing the epilogue. I was like, what if she just showed up? So that's what I did, uh, and I think it makes a fun and surprising kind of cliffhanger ending there. And now that we're back here, and uh, as I'm wrapping up this book and looking back at it, I guess I'm realizing that a lot of the things that are the most important to this story are things that I really didn't plan. I'm a pretty extensive planner. You know, there are sort of two camps of authors. And of course, it's a spectrum, but there are the people on the one side who may have an opening idea or a sense of their character, but really no idea where it's going to go. This is Stephen King to a T, and they just start writing and see what happens. Stephen King doesn't even know if he's writing a short story or a series. He just has an idea and sees where it goes, which is awesome. And I wish I could do it, but I am on the other side where uh, if I don't have a sense of where I'm going, my mind spins too much with all the places I could go and whether they're cool or not and whatever. And I kind of get tongue tied in the actual uh, middle of paragraphs that I'm trying to write. I need to have a pretty good sense of direction and trust that the overall plan is good so that I can just make the individual sentences and lines and scenes good. So I'm on the pretty far on the planning end of that spectrum. 
And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I've learned over time to give myself more space to let that plan change if my instincts say it should change. Basically, I'm developing writing instincts and also learning to trust them more, which is interesting. But there's this other thing that I noticed happening as I was working on this book and revising it, which is that uh, there are often little details that come up that I didn't plan for, but that don't change the plan at all. And I just kind of throw them in because why wouldn't the people in this place be greedy merchants? And why wouldn't there be a secret document like chronicles what the monks see when they go under there for their immersion for the first time? Uh, those are both things that just kind of came to me when I was writing book one. Like, yeah, maybe there's some chronicles because I felt like her father needed something to say to her to be like, go look for this thing. So I was like, oh, maybe there's some chronicles. I don't know what's in them. <laughs> I likewise didn't know what these mer greedy merchants were like or what their city was like. Then as I'm planning book two, I'm like, well, I guess we could make a magic system around that. So that's what I did. And it ended up being a lot of fun. And obviously uh, in book two, she's on a real mission to find those chronicles, gets them. And here in book three, we discover that they like hold the secret to this thing she's been unsure how to do for so long, which is how to stop the floods. And so now we're on the mission to get the monocle, which is the thing that will stop the floods that the Chronicles talk about. I didn't plan any of that stuff. I sort of knew that she's probably going to try to stop the floods in the end and that she's probably going to try to get back with her lover from book one and that the world has a lot more cultural details that I hadn't fleshed in. But it's really interesting to see how my brain just kind of throws a detail out there. And then when I'm writing the next book, I come back and I like develop it. And somehow those end up being the most interesting bits. Like, because, you know, I also, I almost think that a lot of times we're more creative when we have limitations. And maybe this is related to Sanderson's ideas that the limitations of magic are more interesting than the powers of it. But for me, if I'm kind of limited by like, okay, they're greedy merchants or they're, all this document can be is records of things that people saw when they went under, which is a, like a strange form of knowledge and not super trustworthy and going to be very arcane. Those limitations, I think, uh, really push my imagination in other ways. Whereas when I'm planning a novel and I don't necessarily the limitations and anything can happen, sometimes it feels overwhelming and I feel like you can de default to the obvious thing in those cases when the less obvious thing is probably the more interesting thing. So I've been grateful as I work through this to um, have these limitations that I need to expand on and often that end up being very important for the story. Yeah, another one, the like we've been talking about the last couple of preview blabbers, <clears throat> which is what I'm officially calling these after chapter things, is that I didn't see how Gaxna's coming would impact Esong. And here in this chapter, we saw for the first time how it impacts Esong. But the ramifications continue from there because it's a book about teams. But if Esong is troubled with a new member of the team, that division is going to spread out into the team. And I think we'll see more of that in the next couple of chapters, but not something that I planned for. And part of why this book uh, ended up kind of being a lot about relationships instead of about battles or magic or whatever the other ones were about. Um, because this this uh, surprise thing at the end of book two had all these ramifications I didn't see coming. And in the middle of writing, I was like, oh, wow, like I, I can't realistically write this without dealing with this ramification or amplification and that changes everything. And that's kind of been how it has gone with a lot of these things that I just come up with is that um, they give me space to be creative in a bound way. And they also 
imply all of these things. They have these ramifications and amplifications, <laughs> amplifications, interesting, that end up being super interesting in ways that the made up from whole cloth things aren't. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but Alethea herself started off as a minor character in a different book that I was planning and never wrote at all called All the King's Bastards. Um, she was just a side character, and as I was developing who she was and her backstory, she just got more and more interesting. And I think that's because in planning that book, I was starting from whole cloth, and <clears throat> I didn't have many limitations, and I was maybe just kind of doing the boring expected things. But once I started iterating on that, and I got through like the five obvious characters and started making characters that needed to be a little bit different, or they were more shaped by the world that I had created, because that world was this world in a strange way. Maybe sometime I'll go back and talk more about that. But she was a product of the limitations of the world and all the details I'd already put in. So she was like the second level of detail, uh, an upscale, if you use AI art algorithms. <laughs> she was an upscale and she was so much more interesting than the original things that I'd come up with that I decided to write her story and have never gone back to All the King's Bastards and probably never will, even though I like the title. Um, so it's been an interesting thing that I've noticed in writing this book is that the, the little things end up being big things. And me, the consummate planner, finds the best parts of his stories often to be the unplanned parts. Uh, although maybe that's because I then planned the hell out of them. <laughs> but either way, I hope you enjoyed that preview. I've got a couple more coming up. I think we're doing a double chapter next time. So listen on for those. As always, I hope this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. Till our next one, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, visit www levijacobs.com or for a free audiobook only available to podcast listeners go to www.levijacobs.com slash free thanks for listening and read on